It's just good to be all together this morning, and I'm going to cut right to it. We're in week five out of six weeks. We're talking about deepening prayer this morning. We've been talking about learning prayer and, and all kinds of good stuff about prayer. And so right now, we're just going to practice some prayer. And so one of the things we like to do is just change our posture before God. We're going to go to Him in prayer. Um, if you want to stand, stand. If you want to raise hands, raise hands. If you want to get down on your knees, just like we sang, we bow down, I encourage you to do that. Let's just go to God in the word of prayer. Lord, your, your mercies are new every morning, and your faithfulness is great, and your love is, is incomprehensible. And so this morning, God, as we, as we learn about you, and we talk about prayer, and we think about how meaningful this is in our lives, Lord, I pray that you would, you would deepen our prayer life. I pray that, that what happens on Sunday morning is just a reflection of what's happening Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. I pray, Lord, for the, the, the partnerships that have formed throughout the church, Lord, that you would continue to nurture those and that you would deepen those uh, into friendships and, and relationships that, that are, are more than just quick touch points during the week, Lord, but, but opportunities to just be real and transparent with one another. We talk about sin, Father, and it lurks. It's always there for us. And Lord, I pray that you use prayer and you use our friendships in the, in the church to strengthen us and equip us to be steadfast and, and have a laser-like focus on, on living according to your ways and according to your word. Father, we ask your Holy Spirit to be in this room. I pray, Father, that you would speak through me. I pray that you would help every eye to stay awake and every ear to stay open. Father, bless us as we get into your word this morning. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So the, uh, if you guys have ever heard the statement, opposites attract, I, uh, I don't know if it's actually universally true or not. It's true of magnets. I, I don't know if it's true for everyone. I can say and speak only about my marriage, my wife and I, and when I look at our marriage, it really, really is because you know, I, I look at Tiff and I look at me and the things that are important to us and the things that we do well are so very, very different. Uh, Tiffany's the kind of person who has an assignment in school and she turns it in a month early. I'm not exaggerating. You can ask her about all of her assignments that are done weeks ahead of time right now. I'm the kind of guy who stays up the night before, pulls an all-nighter just to barely get it in. Amen. Tiffany's, amen. Thank you. <laughs> That might, have been, that might have been the best amen we've gotten yet. <laughs> Tiffany's the kind of person who insists on doing the dishes before we go to bed. I'm the kind of person who says, you know what? I'll take care of it in the morning. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> Tiffany's the kind of person who thinks about a gift, you know, like a month ahead of time before she gives it. I'm the kind of person who's like a day before, right? Like you think about Valentine's Day, I'm not the February 14th guy who's like in the store looking around. I'm like the February 13th guy, right? I'm at least a day ahead of time. Um, sometimes I feel bad for those guys who are there day of trying to scramble. Just the kind of person that when everything is okay, she can, she's pretty friendly. She's pretty talkative. And I, I tend to be kind of quiet when everything's okay. And then when things aren't okay and, and someone's mad, Tiff's the kind of person that gets awfully quiet, and I'm the kind of person that gets really, really talkative. Um, and the list goes on and on and on. I don't know if you'd say that you've had the same experience with your spouse, with your husband and wife uh, that we've had. 
you know, when it comes to, to showing up somewhere, Tiff's on time and I'm an hour early for no apparent reason, but that's how things go. And that's why when it comes to all of our stuff, like all the things that we own, you know, Tiff and I continue to be on two different wavelengths about how we, we deal with that stuff because Tiff seems to get some sick joy out of donating and purging and otherwise getting rid of things that we no longer need or seem to need. And for me, man, every single item, everything we own is tied to some, some memory that I cherish. I'm not a hoarder. I'm, I'm going to choose to call myself a sentimental keeper. <laughs> but if, if there's a memory or a good feeling tied to an item, like, man, I don't want to get rid of that thing. And so a lot of you know, you know, we're, we're getting ready to move again. We're having to move. It's, it's, a, it's a pleasure to do because we get to come back over here and be closer and we're looking forward to that. And yet every single move comes with some version of that process, right? What is this? <laughs> Do we still need this thing? Do we need that? Why are we still hanging on to this? And my response is always, oh yeah, I want to keep that because. Oh yeah, I want to keep that because. And then I have to kind of go have this back and forth discussion with myself in my head and go like, all right, have you touched that thing in the last six years? No. <laughs> Are you going to touch it in the next six years? No, but, but, but you just never know. You know what I mean? You just never know. And so, you know, yeah, I, I don't really need that. And so my, my sentimental keeping tendencies mean that I still have the Nintendo I played when I was a kid. It still works. I still have my Super Nintendo. I still have my PlayStation and my PlayStation 2 and my Xbox and all of these things. Now ask me if I still play video games. I don't. <laughs> I don't have time. So why do I have so many darn video games? Well, uh, it, there's a lot of memories tied to those video games. And I'm just curious, who here is a, again, not a hoarder, a sentimental keeper like me? All right. And which of you heartless people is like Tiffany, who likes to just get rid of all of the stuff? <laughs> you have no, no ties of emotions to any of it. Yeah, you guys are heartless. <clears throat> Uh, here's the thing. My, my sentimentalism has a way of, of tugging on my emotions in a way that very few things can. It really tugs on my emotions. When I get to pause and I get to look back on what was, like almost nothing can bring me to my knees quicker than those memories. I'm, I'm a serial looker-backer. And sometimes that absolutely wrecks me. It wrecks me to look back and think about what's was. Because I can already see the day. My kids are grown, and they've moved out of the house, and they, they live on their own, they have families of their own, and I'm going to stumble out to the garage or up into the attic looking for that old tennis racket. I don't play tennis, but you know, I go look, look for the old tennis racket anyway, and I come out. Come What's that? <laughs> we just donated our tennis rackets? Man! I used those twice. I thought the third time was going to be the best time of all. <clears throat> See, you learn something new every day. She, and she's smiling while she does it. I mean, I tell you, it's a sick joy she has. <clears throat> so I won't be looking for my tennis rackets. I'll be looking for my old glove. And, uh, and when I do, I'm going to come across an old dusty box. And, and I'm going to open it up and I'm going to start looking through there. And I know I'm going to be standing in a puddle of my own tears 
as I remember what once was. And, and frankly, I have enough wherewithal within me to know I'm, I'm going to be thinking about right now. I'm going to be thinking about the joy of what I have right now. And so when you think about those things that really tug on your emotions and grab your heart, what is that? Like for me, for me, it's my kids. And I want to be clear, Tiff is my first and greatest love on this earth. And yet there is something about the love between a mother or a father and their child that is incomparable. It is incomparable. They are your flesh and blood. They came from you. They exist only because you exist. They look like you. They act like you for better or for worse. Lately, as 13 approaches, the the worst part starts to come out. You're like, I recognize that person. I saw them in the mirror. Um, And so, you know, I I do weddings. I'm doing my third wedding of the year coming up here shortly. And one of the things that, that I often touch on during the ceremony is how there's this wedding language all throughout Scripture that the, the Bible portrays uh, the relationship between a husband and wife is very, very similar to the relationship that Jesus has with his church, where the Bible calls Jesus the bridegroom and the church the bride. And yet when the Bible portrays the relationship between us and the Father, what kind of relationship is on full display? Well, I sort of already gave that away a moment ago. It's that, that father-child relationship. And we see this on full display all throughout Scripture, maybe most prominently in something like the parable of the prodigal son. It's a story that celebrates a lost child who returns home to the unconditional love of a father. And we understand that uh, we understand that moment perhaps more than any other because in some sense we understand that kind of love that as a dad I can understand what it would look like to run shamelessly across a field to embrace one of my kids who had been lost and come home. Like we know what that would feel like. We know how important that would be to us. There's nothing quite like the love between a child and their parents. And that kind of love or understanding that kind of love is critical when it comes to understanding what a deeper or a deepening prayer life really looks like. And so as we said last week, and we've been saying throughout the series, prayer is communication and it is intimacy with God. And if that is what prayer is, then the question we need to consider this morning is how do we deepen our prayer life? How do we deepen that? How do we make it stronger? How do we make it richer and more vibrant and more alive? And as we've already been putting into practice and have touched on briefly, one of the keys and perhaps the most significant key to deepening our prayer life begins with our ability to let God's word change us and transform us. In other words, it starts with our willingness to go to God's word and meditate on his word. And again, just in case you weren't with us for week one, when we talk about meditation, we're not talking about like Eastern religious forms of meditation where the goal is almost to empty your mind of all thoughts and all substance. No, this is very different. I'm talking about the kind of meditation where a person reads and reflects on and internalizes scripture because, because they recognize it as the holy word of God. And that is precious to them. And so I don't care who you read. If you read N.T. Wright or Tim Keller or Eugene Peterson or just about anybody else, um, they seem to share a common conviction about prayer and specifically what it takes to deepen prayer. And And they say that it begins in the Psalms, that the Psalms 
are the place in Scripture that teach us how to praise. They teach us how to lament. They teach us how to enthrone. The Psalms are where we get that language, that if our Lord's Prayer teaches us how to pray, it's the Psalms that teach us how to enrich that prayer, how to mature that prayer so that our communication and our intimacy with God brings him glory and brings him honor. It brings him petition and praise. It brings him our, our rebuke and our remorse. And so in his book, Keller says, if, if prayer is to be a true conversation with God, it must be regularly preceded by listening to God's voice through meditation on the scripture. And so Eugene Peterson says, hey, the Psalms are the gateway. The Psalms are the gateway there. That's how we, we go and we meditate on who he is. And so oftentimes, if you're not as familiar with the Psalms, you know, we, we don't spend a lot of time there sometimes. We, we may have a tendency to think of them in much the same way we think about those hymnals that are sitting on the, the shelf over there. It's just a collection of old songs in no particular order just thrown into a book. But I just want to say that's not what the Psalms are. But the Psalms are old songs, yes. But they're but not, not just inserted in the Psalter at random, are they? They're not just there in no particular order for no particular reason. That they are edited and they are ordered in such a way that they are a movement. They are a symphony of sorts in their own right. And I think nowhere is that more obvious than when you look at the very first psalm and when you look at the very last psalm, Psalm 1 and Psalm 150. And so I invite you to open up your Bibles to Psalm 1, and I can begin to show you what I mean. I'll be projecting some of this stuff if you don't have a Bible with you. We spent some time in Psalm 1, but I want to illustrate some stuff with it this morning. The psalmist writes, Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither whatever they do prospers but not so the wicked they are like chaff that the wind blows away and i want you to think about this what's the picture that the psalmist wants us the reader to see as we read this this text well he says basically that there are two kinds of people there are those who delight in god's law who meditate on it who wrestle with it who taste it and chew on it and digest it. He says those people are like trees. Those people are like trees who are planted by a stream of water. In other words, those who actually enjoy God's law, who enjoy his word and spend time with it, are never without nourishment, that their roots go deep. They are always well fed. They are always green. They always bear fruit when they're supposed to bear fruit. The psalmist says those people are prosperous people. Those people are prosperous people. And then there are those who don't, who don't delight in God's law, who don't spend time with his word, who don't pursue him or really frankly even want him very much. And the psalmist almost seems to imply that those people are wicked people, that they aren't trees who are always green. They aren't bearing fruit. What are they according to the psalmist? They're like what? They're like chaff. What's chaff? Well, if you've ever held like wheat or grain or something along those lines, chaff is that, that papery 
like material, kind of like a corn husk that you find around wheat or grain. It's not edible. It's not good for anything. It's, it's basically trash to be thrown away or burned up. I mean, all throughout scripture, you get this, this imagery of chaff being destroyed, being burned up. And what Keller wants to point out, and what I want you to begin to see as you look at Psalm 1, is that Psalm 1 is here for a reason. You know, Keller would say this is not just a psalm about meditation. It's actually a meditation about meditation. In other words, before we're introduced to the rest of the the collection of psalms, the Psalter, the psalmist sets the stage and he imbues a culture of meditation. And he's saying that those who approach the words of these psalms with a posture and a spirit of meditation on them are like trees besides waters, and those who don't are like chaff. Chaff can't produce anything. But what does a tree produce? Fruit. Chaff can't grow. But a tree, as we all well know, living in Northern California, as we have Muir Woods to the north and Big Basin to the south and Sequoia National Forest to the east, man, a tree can grow, can't it? It can grow into this massive, amazing thing that leaves us awestruck. Chaff doesn't grow, but a tree that is well-nourished can grow into something impressive. And so the Psalms begin with a call to action. It's a call to heed some advice. Meditate on God's law day and night. Day and night. And they end, that was how Psalms begin, Psalm 1. Psalm 150 ends with a call to praise. Let everything that has breath, what? Praise the Lord. Say praise the Lord, church. Praise the Lord. Amen. And so what do we do? If we, if we meditate on, on the Psalms and we use 1 and 150 as bookends, then we're meditating on Psalms 2 through 149. And then we join all of creation in 150 in one loud shout of adoration for the goodness of a loving God. Why do we do this? We do this because we delight in God. We delight in he himself, or at least that's what he craves from us. He says, I want you to delight in me. I want you to want that kind of a relationship with me. It's a call to delight in him in the same way that he delights in us. He delights in us. He delights in you, church. Say, he delights in me. He does. And I think this is where that relationship between a father and a child or a mother and a child becomes so important. Because that unique relationships, relationship, perhaps more than any other kind of relationship we have, reveals to us and shows us something. It shows us how to delight, how to truly delight in another person. Because someday when I venture into the garage or attic and I pick up that dusty box to look for those tennis rackets that Tiffany gave away 30 years ago, um, I'm going to find those pictures of my kids, those, those pictures that they drew me, those little notes that they wrote in Chicken Scratch that say, I love you, Daddy. I'm going to find those old pictures that are framed where we held them as newborns. And I'm going to pause. And I'm going to delight in those moments, in those words, in those pictures. I'm going to delight in them. I'm going to pause and enjoy each and every stick figure, each and every word. I will consume them and I will cherish them and, they, and I will internalize those words so they become part of me. They become part of who I am. That I was a man loved, deeply loved by his kids and they love me enough to tell me that. Now right now they're playing with cush balls, but you know, <laughs> I know they still love me. Any of you who have had those kinds of moments know exactly what I mean when I talk about delighting in the love between a parent and their child. 
If you, if you know what I'm talking about, say amen, church. Amen. And so this week I finished an audio book that I was going through. And it was time to pick a new book. And uh, so I got into Audible and started kind of looking through the list. What am I going to listen to next? And Audible makes some recommendations based on stuff you've listened to in the past. And so I saw a book titled there that I've, I've referenced in a number of sermons. Uh, all of you are, are familiar with, but I hadn't actually read it cover to cover. Just seen the Cliff Notes versions or the, the little excerpts that I've read and shared here and there. And it was Dale Carnegie's book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. So I started going through Chapter one was great. Yeah, I get into chapter two. It's a chapter that encourages the reader not to criticize people or, or to be critical of other people. And he shares an excerpt from Reader's Digest. There's a, a poem or a short story in there called A Father Forgets. And I got to tell you, as I started listening to that the other day, I was not ready for the flood of emotions that were getting ready to pour over me. But I want to read this piece to you because I, I think it's highly relevant to what we're talking about this morning. It's probably 100 years old. It's, guy by, it's by a guy by the name of uh, W. Livingston Larned. And this is what he says. He says, listen, son. I am saying this as you lie asleep. One little paw crumpled under your cheek and the blonde curls stickily wet on your damp forehead. I have stolen into your room alone. Just a few minutes ago, as I sat reading my paper in the library, a stifling wave of remorse swept over me. Guiltily, I came to your bedside. There are things I was thinking, son. I had been cross to you. I scolded you as you were dressing for school because you gave your face merely a dab with a towel. I took you to task for not cleaning your shoes. I called out angrily when you threw some of your things on the floor. At breakfast, I found fault too. You spilled things. You gulped down your food. You put your elbows on the table. You spread butter too thick on your bread. And as you started off to play and I made for my train, you turned and you waved a hand and called, Goodbye, Daddy. And I frowned and said in reply, Hold your shoulders back. Then it began all over again in the late afternoon. As I came up the road, I spied you down on your knees playing marbles. There were holes in your stockings. I humiliated you before your friends by marching you ahead of me to the house. Stockings were expensive. And if you had to buy them, you would be more careful. Imagine that, son, from a father. Do you remember later when I was reading the library how you came in timidly with a sort of hurt look in your eyes? When I glanced up over my paper, impatient at the interruption, you hesitated at the door. What is it you want? I snapped. You said nothing, but ran across in one tempestuous plunge and threw your arms around my neck and kissed me, and your small arms tightened with an affection 
that God had set blooming in your heart in which even neglect could not wither. And then you were gone, pattering up the stairs. Well, son, it was shortly afterwards that my paper slipped from my hands and a terrible, sickening fear came over me. What has habit been doing to me? The habit of finding fault, of reprimanding. This was my reward to you for being a boy. It was not that I did not love you. It was that I expected too much of youth. I was measuring you by the yardstick of my own years. And there was so much that was good and fine and true in your character. The little heart of you was as big as the dawn itself over the wide hills. This was shown by your spontaneous impulse to rush in and kiss me goodnight. Nothing else matters tonight, son. I have come to your bedside in the darkness, and I have knelt there, ashamed. It is a feeble atonement. I know you would not understand these things if I told them to you during your waking hours, but tomorrow I will be a real daddy. I will chum with you and suffer when you suffer and laugh when you laugh. I will bite my tongue when impatient words come. I will keep saying as if it were a ritual, he is nothing but a boy, a little boy. I am afraid I have visualized you as a man. Yet as I see you now, son, crumpled and weary in your cot, I see that you are still a baby. Yesterday, you were in your mother's arms, your head on her shoulder. I have asked too much. Too much. I'm going to say, I was not ready to, to hear those words this week. They, they wrecked me for a moment. But they also helped me. Because they called me to consider and remember what it is to delight in another person. Because I have been this kind of daddy to my kids. I've been the kind of daddy who snaps, the daddy who scolds, the daddy who corrects out of habit. I have been the daddy who seems otherwise unable to pause and enjoy at times the beauty of my children until they are fast asleep, snoring their little snores, unafraid and comfortable because they know at least their mom and dad would protect them at any cost. And I've been this kind of son. Yeah, I'm talking about the the kind of son I've been to my mom and dad, but more than that, I'm talking about the kind of son I've been to God, our, our Father in heaven. I've been the kind of son who has heard his words of warning and has chosen my own path. I've been the kind of son who has put off prayer until later because I had other seemingly more important things to attend to first. I've been the kind of son who would rather spend time watching a baseball game or just about anything else instead of spending time in his word. I've been the kind of son content to know information about him rather than having a relationship with him. I am the same kind of dad to my kids as I am a son to my God and my father. And sometimes, sometimes he makes so painfully clear how much he delights in me and how much I seem to delight in just about anything 
but him. Is that true of anybody else in this room? Open your Bibles up to Ephesians. Ephesians is this powerful letter. And it's written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Ephesus. And there's sort of one big message that centers a lot around temple language. And his message is basic. It's that no matter who you are, whether you are a Jewish believer or you are a Gentile believer, God has loved all of you, all of us enough that he has reconciled us to him through the cross, through the cross of his son, Jesus. And he says to those, to those two groups of people, so you are no longer foreigners and strangers. Actually, he's talking to the Gentiles here. You are no longer foreigners and strangers. He says you are predestined for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ. And now he says in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 17, using very similar language to Psalm 1, he says, I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and how long and how high and how deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. I want you to think about this. What does it mean? What does it take to grasp the width and the length and the height and the depth of the love of Christ? Because it's more than just understanding it intellectually. Grasping something is experiencing the fullness of that thing. It's, it's about internalizing something. It's about letting that something change you. The, the man who wrote that poem I shared a moment ago always understood intellectually that his son loved him, that he loved his son. But that night when he wrote those words, that was a night where he grasped it, where he internalized it and it let it change him. Do you see the difference in what I'm talking about? Does that make sense? Raise your hand if you know God loves you. Raise it high. Now let me ask you this, or rather ask you to ask yourself this. Have you grasped it? Have you grasped how much God loves you? Keller uses the analogy of a camera with film. Raise your hand if you know that cameras used to have film in them. Yeah, yeah, it sure still does. <laughs> How do those cameras work? Well, there's like a shutter, right? And the shutter would open up and the light would bounce off whatever objects were in their way and the light would come into the camera and boom. Is that all it takes to take a picture? No, you needed something else first, right? You needed film. You needed film that was prepared to grasp that image. That when the light came in, the film was permanently impacted by what it saw. But if, as Keller points out, the film has not been properly prepared, then what happens instead? Well, the light comes in, but the film isn't sensitive enough to grasp a clear image. And so the light, he says, makes no difference to the film whatsoever. When we do not and cannot delight in God's law and his word, we are like that film. We are unprepared to grasp 
what God is trying to tell us about his love. We are, are like that daddy who is ever distracted by the circumstances in such a way that we cannot see the image of love that is being given freely to us. Even when our child wraps his arm around our neck, the love of God will make no difference whatsoever if we are unprepared to grasp it. And so the question remains, how do we get prepared? How can we make sure we are sensitive to the love of God so that it impacts us and changes us? In other words, the question I'm asking is, how do we meditate? How do we actually meditate? We've been talking about it. How do we do it? And as Psalm 1 reminds us, it starts always in the word of God. That is where meditation begins. Keller points to a few helpful tools. And I invite you, get your your cameras out on your phone. I don't have a handout to give you, but you might want to take pictures of slides. I'm going to give you six tools that I think will help you. Uh, prepare as you as you try to meditate on the Psalms and on other texts. And I just want to say that, you know how the Holy Spirit kind of works in mysterious ways? I didn't plan on there being a handout with commentary for 19 verses uh, or 19 Psalms given out today. And yet God works in such a way. I got a call, a voicemail from Thomas last night going, hey, Josh, I think it'd be really great if we had some context for some of the Psalms that we're talking about. Well, I didn't have time to actually do anything about that, but God's been working. And so through John and Michael, that's exactly what we have is some context. I'm going to tell you how to use some of that this morning. The first tool I want to talk to you about, I'm calling salt. Salt. We should have one slide to come up here, Drew, but yeah. It's an acronym, study and learn the text. How do you eat something that has no flavor? Well, you shouldn't. You should always salt it, right? So how can you properly meditate on and internalize something you don't understand? You can't properly meditate on or discern something you don't understand, right? So you have to learn it. You have to read commentary. You have to ask questions. You you can't learn. uh, You have to learn what is being said properly in order to meditate on it. And so I want you to ask yourself a few questions. What is the context in Scripture? In other words, if I'm reading this passage and I don't understand it, what's happening immediately before it? And what's happening immediately after it? That's going to help give me some scriptural or literary context for this verse. And I can, I can learn a little bit about something. Secondarily, and this is what, what Thomas was talking about, and what Michael is trying to provide with, with his 19, handout, 19 psalm handout today. What is the context in history? What, what is the psalmist or, or what is the, the author writing about? When are they writing it? What is happening in their lives? What's happening in the world around them? So what is the context in history? And third, what was the author trying to convey? You have to know, like, this is the, the purpose of this text. This is what the author is trying to accomplish with this text. And I think Jeremiah 29, 11 is a great example. A lot of you are probably familiar with this text. But Jeremiah 29, 11 says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. It's plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. That's an awesome text, right? I mean, it's poetic. It goes really well on your wall. It makes a fantastic meme, all of that stuff. And yet we have to ask the question, is that a statement for me? Is God talking to me, Josh, when he writes those words? Go like this, church. He's absolutely not talking to me. When he says, I have these plans to prosper you and not to harm you, to give you hope in a future, he's not talking about me. He's not talking about you individually. He's talking about a, a particular community of people, the Israelites or the Jews, in their context thousands of years ago. Like, it's a nice verse, but it's not a promise that God is going to prosper me. And so if you meditate on that verse with the wrong understanding, you're meditating on a false message. So, 
Sorry about spoiling anyone who loves Jeremiah 29.11. It's a great verse, I agree. It's just not a promise for each of us. All right, number two. What does this teach me about Gucci? Hopefully you guys are familiar with the brand Gucci, and if not, we'll, we'll learn. I mean, we're not actually talking about the brand at all, but it's a little something to help you remember. But when you read a text, I want you to read a text slowly, and I want you to ask yourself five questions. Number one, what does this teach me about God and his character? What does this text teach me about God and who he is? Number two, what does this teach me about us, people, human nature, their character, their behavior? Number three, what does this teach me about Christ and his salvation? What, what, what am I learning about Christ in this text? Four, what does this teach me about the church or life and the people of God? And fifth, what does this teach me about I, about me? Is there something that I learn from this text as well? So what does this teach me about Gucci? Number three, apply it. Are there examples from the text to emulate? Are there examples from this text to avoid? Are there any commands that we need to obey? Are there any promises that we need to be mindful of? Are there any warnings here that we need to heed? You need to ask some of those kinds of questions from a text. Number four, I'm calling meow like a cat. <laughs> Meditate by emphasizing one word. Meditate by emphasizing one word. How do you do that? Well, you take a very short passage of scripture. Maybe it's five words. Maybe it's 10 words. This week, we're going to be reading Psalm 23. Famous passage there. Famous line. The Lord is my shepherd. So how do you meow this text? Man, you do the same thing your cat does when he wants to eat in the morning. Meow, meow, meow. And you repeat it over and over and over again. But you emphasize each word a little bit differently. So what does this look like? It means you read it and you meditate and you think, The Lord is my shepherd. 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 What do you learn about the text as you, as you emphasize each word and you think about how that each word impacts the meaning of that phrase? You can learn a little bit. So meow. Meditate by emphasizing one word. Number five, not five, five. Paraphrase. Spend just a few minutes recapping what you just read. Recap it. Think to yourself, okay, if I was going to summarize that in my own words, what would I say? What, what would I say if I had to teach this to somebody else? How would I summarize it for someone I was teaching? That's an important question to ask. And number six, memorize. Memorize scripture. And this is my personal favorite. Some, some people hear this and they think, man, I, th that's hard. And it is. It kind of is. But I, I want to encourage you with this. How many of you have used or, or used Pandora before? Ever heard of Pandora on the computer? You know, it came out in like 2005, and it was like this epiphany to me, because you could get on there, and you could go and like type in my favorite artist or favorite genre, and it would just start playing these songs. And what I realized is that there were all these songs that I'd heard throughout my life that I had long since forgotten about until Pandora came out. And I was like, oh yeah, I remember that song, I remember that song. This is good, and I, I fell in love with Pandora. And you can do this today with Spotify and Apple Music, but we sort of take this for granted 10 years later. But man, 10 years ago, that was a big deal. And so you're listening to the radio, you're listening to these songs, and, and all of a sudden you hear that song you haven't heard in a long time. And what do you do? You start to sing along, right? You start to sing along. How do you do that? You haven't heard that song in years. You haven't heard it in ages. And yet you know the words. I remember driving one night years ago with Tiffany 
And all of a sudden, this InSync song comes out. Not only does Tiffany sing the words, she does the bye, bye, bye thing, right? In the car, we're driving late at night. I mean, there's something about the ability for music to stick in our lives. It's like, you know, yeah, they're, they're, they're locked somewhere in that attic in our brain next to the old dusty tennis rackets and the old box. Like, there are these lyrics that we'll never, ever forget. A guy by the name of Andrew Fletcher once said, Give me the songs of a nation. I don't care who writes its laws. Give me the songs of a nation. I don't care who writes its laws. Why would he say that? He says that because he understands the power of things like music, that when those thoughts or when those words are implanted in our hearts and our minds, they have a way of changing us and transforming us in ways that no law ever could. How many of you have memorized laws? How many of you have memorized songs? A lot of them, right? And so if you want to be transformed by the word of God, memorize it in the same way that you memorized all those lyrics from all those songs you've heard throughout your life. And in those times when you're seeking intimacy with God or trying to consider, hey, what would Jesus do? And sit back and lean on the words that are locked away in there already for you. You look at Deuteronomy chapter 6. This is something that, that God has been talking about for a long, long time. Moses stands before the whole Israelite community. And he says, guys, these commandments I give you today, they're to be on your hearts. I want you to talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. How do you talk about God's commands when you sit at home and walk along the road? Do they have Bibles like this like we do now? What do they do? So this is the part we say they memorized it. They, they memorized it. And so an example from this in our own life, uh, just this last week, you know, a lot of you know we're, we're trying to sell our house right now. We got an offer. Uh, we accepted the offer. And yet I was feeling pretty frustrated about that offer because it was less than we thought we needed. It was less than we wanted for our house. And so I was kind of feeling down in the dumps, going, man, is this really something that I can take? Is this really something I can accept? And as I'm sitting there thinking about it one day, those words that we talked about just last week pop into my head, just raging at me. Give us this day our daily bread. Give us this day our daily bread. What did those words do in my life? I'll tell you, it made me ask some questions. Do I trust God enough that this is what I need and no more? Do I trust God enough that this is what I need and no more? And once I started asking that question, it totally changed my perspective. I moved from a place of disappointment and frustration to a place of peace and joy that God had given us exactly what we needed, that he is a good God. Amen? Amen. God is a good God. And so I want to ask you this as we prepare to, to bring today's message to a close. I just gave you six methods to meditate on God's word, six ways to grasp it, and yet nothing will impact you or change you if you are not prepared to grasp. That just like the film and the camera, your heart needs to be prepared to grasp before you will ever experience change. And so the difference between a prepared heart and an unprepared heart are like night and day. Say night and day, church. Night, night and day. It's the difference between a father who knows he loves and is loved by his son and a father who grasps the fullness of his love. That kind of father says, I know you would not understand these things if I told them to you during the waking hours, but tomorrow I will be a real daddy. I will chum with you and suffer when you suffer and laugh when you laugh. There is something special about the love between a parent and a child. There's something special about that. And if we are not yet prepared to grasp God's word, 
We can, without ever realizing it, we can forget and fail to love our Father in heaven in the same way that he has loved us. We can forget that. We get content with knowing about him rather than loving and having a relationship with him. And so this morning, I want to invite you to something. I want to invite you to grasp God's love. I want to invite you to experience God's love fully. And so as we close this morning, I want you to ask something that if you've, if you've ever, or if you've never had that moment or that epiphany that that author talked about in your relationship with God, if you have never stopped in your tracks to consider the length and the width and the height and the depths of God's love for you, would you do that this morning? Would you stop where you are and would you truly consider the magnitude of God's love? Like, have you ever let yourself fully grasp the love of God? And if not, what's holding you back? What's holding you back? What is hardening your heart to saying yes to him? And so as we draw to a close this morning, I want to invite you into a relationship with a very real God, a very big God, a very glorious and awesome God, a God who loves you, not just any God, but the God who looks at you and he sees a son and he sees a daughter and he offers adoption to you and he offers it freely. He offers inheritance to you and he offers it freely. He offers life to you. And how does he offer it, church? Freely. He offers it freely. So why would we choose to be orphans without an inheritance and without eternal life? Why? I want you to consider that question as we close thinking about Psalm 19. We read this this week. Psalm 19 talks about the glory of God's law. Verse 7 says, The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from a honeycomb. By them your servant is warned, in keeping them there is great reward. Church, the, the, the Father offers us his holy word. His word. God speaks to us. He offers it to us to meditate on, to delight in, and to grasp the length and the width and the height and the depth of his love. And at the end of it, of it all, he offers us a great reward. Church, God is really, really good. Amen? Amen. Let's stand. Let's sing. If you are ready to receive a love that trans trespasses, transgresses all understanding. I can't even speak right now. I invite you to come. Uh, God is a really big loving God. He's a good God and he invites us into a relationship with him. Let's sing.